How's everybody doing? All right, so hey, my name is Aaron. I'm a pastor across town at Ada Bible Church. Uh, pretty good friends with Brady. In fact, he hired me at Ada, and I do kind of what he used to do at Ada Bible Church now, which is oversee the student ministry over there. And uh, I'm excited to be here. Have you guys noticed how amazing this place is? Like, yeah. Popcorn, coffee. I mean, this, this space here is like, as a pastor, I'm like, are you guys maybe hiring at all? Or... Um, but anyway, uh, I'm excited to open the scriptures with all of you guys uh, this morning. I, I want to begin by asking you a question. Uh, where do you fall in the birth order of your family? So how many uh, firstborns do we have? Okay, yeah, that was an aggressive hand raise because we're firstborns, right? Uh, how many babies do we have? Yep, okay. Not going to ask about middle kids because that's what it's like to be in the middle, right? It's like nobody cares, nobody even knows what it's like to be me. Uh, so certain privileges come with being the firstborn. And I'm not just saying that because I am a firstborn. Uh, it's true. Like the firstborns get to go first in a lot of things. So a common argument in my house is like, how come he gets to stay up later than us? Or how come he gets to watch that movie and we don't? It's like, well, it's because he's older. And when you're the oldest, you, you get to go first in a lot of things. Uh, and it's not, and not just what you do, but it's also kind of what you get. So um, if you're a firstborn, here's your brand new pair of jeans, okay? So some things to notice here, uh, there's a tag on it because it's from a store, all right? So, uh, yep, that's that. And then uh, if you're not the firstborn, um, you know, it's mostly new. And uh, I'd like to apologize right out the gate because those of you who are not firstborn, I'm just digging up all this bad stuff from your past. I apologize. Uh, but this is important because uh, the impact of birth order is significant in our culture. I mean, it does impact uh, who we are and how we live our lives. But even more importantly for this morning, birth order had a huge impact in the ancient world. And so this story that we're going to be looking at today, a guy by the name of Jacob, who's part of this family that God called to be his people. If you're uh, familiar with church, maybe grew up in the church, Abraham, you know, he had this son named Isaac, and then he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. This is God's family. They'll become Israel. Our story is about this guy, Jacob, and birth order really matters in this story. So where we find Jacob today, I brought a map. Uh, this is uh, where his family is from here in Israel, a place called Beersheba. And then he is way up here in Haran, which is like five or 600 miles away from his home. He's all alone. And the question is, Jacob, what are you doing so far away from home? And understand, five or 600 miles back then, like that's a huge and astronomical distance. And so Jacob, what are you doing so far from home? Uh, three important factors. Now, Jacob's family, he has two parents, uh, kind of like most of us, right? Like two people, yeah, anyway. Uh, so he's got Isaac, who's his dad, Re uh, Rebecca, who's his mother, and they are playing favorites. Now, those of you guys who are parents know this is not a good idea, right? You, you don't want to play favorites. It leads to trouble in the family, but they didn't get the memo. So Isaac, his favorite kid is Esau, who's the older brother. They love hunting. They love the outdoors. They bond over this thing. And then you have Rebecca, who's the mother, her favorite is Jacob, and they love being in the kitchen and cooking together and binge-watching shows on Netflix about cooking and baking. This is what they do. So each parent has a favorite, and it's going to lead to trouble in the family. That's factor number one. 
Factor number two is around something called the birthright. Now, in this culture way back in the day, the birthright was like this privilege of inheriting everything that your father owned. Now, Esau stands in line to inherit all this because he's the oldest, and being the oldest mattered in this culture. It's called the birthright. So as the story goes, and you can read about this in the book of Genesis... Esau is out on a hunting trip like he does. He comes back. He's starving. And, of course, Jacob's in the kitchen, you know, cooking up some stew. And Esau's like, hey, I'm dying over here. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob says something very interesting, and you might be familiar with this story. He says, well, first, give me your birthright. Then I'll give you the stew. He's he's like, give me that privilege of inheriting everything. And Esau, in one of the most short-sighted decisions of all time, is like, what good is the birthright if I'm dead? Give me the stew. And so Jacob steals or tricks his brother into giving up this privilege. Interesting story. That's the second factor of why Jacob is so far from home. Third factor has to do when, when Isaac was really old, so the dad is like, He's old, he's in bed, he's, he's almost dead, honestly. He, he can't even see anymore, and the time has come for him to pass his blessing onto his oldest son. And this was a huge deal in this culture, especially with this family, because it's like God blessed Abraham, and then Abraham blessed Isaac, and now Isaac is ready to pass on that blessing of being God's special family to his oldest son. And so he says to Esau, go out hunting, kill a deer, make me some delicious food, and I'm going to pass on that blessing. Now, Rebecca, her favorite is Jacob, right? So she's like, well, I want Jacob to get this blessing. So they pull off this scheme where they dress up Jacob like Esau, make him smell like Esau. They even put lamb's wool on his arms because Esau is his hairy dude. They make a similar dish, serve it. Isaac, he's like almost dead, blind. He ends up blessing Jacob. Jacob steals the birthright and steals the blessing. Esau comes home from hunting, finds out, and he says, when our father dies, I am going to kill you. And he means it. And so Rebecca says, all right, we got to get you out of here. I am sending you far away to where I am from, to my family up in Haran. I'll send you word when it's safe to come back. So why is Jacob so far from home? There's a lot that's going on. Now, let's just take a pause here. I have a question for Jacob, and maybe you're thinking the same thing. Dude, what is up with you? Like, okay, stealing birthrights and stealing, you know, the blessing. Like, what, what is up with you? Why are you doing this, this stuff? Why are you acting this way? Jacob, what's up with you? Why do you do the things that you do? And I think it's pretty clear Jacob is after something that he thinks is going to make his life better. Now, here's a question for us this morning. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do I do the things that I do? You see, I think every single one of us is after something that we believe is going to make our lives better. And so today, I want to have a conversation about it. And by it, I mean whatever it is that we believe is going to make our lives better. Whatever it is that we believe is going to bring us happiness, fulfillment, meaning, and purpose. What is it in our lives? I want to have a conversation about this because I think all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, have something that we're gunning for, that we're going for, that we believe is going to make our lives better and bring us happiness and meaning and fulfillment and purpose. 
And I just think this conversation today could be really helpful for many of us. Because as we journey with Jacob, and as we learn about his life in the city in Haran, and the decisions that he's going to make, the people that he's going to interact with, he's going to have some interactions with it that are not good in his life. And I think if we can learn the lessons from his decisions and his mistakes, man, it could save us so much pain, so much heartache, so much regret in our lives. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed, basically we're going to ask four questions about it. Now, before we get into this first one, let's, let's get acquainted with what uh, Jacob is doing here in Haran. He's living with his mother's family, with this dude named Laban, who is his mother's brother. He's been with him for like a month, and this conversation happens. Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? See, Jacob, he has become like a shepherd for his uncle's flocks. And, and his uncle, to his credit, is like, hey, I should probably pay you something. So tell me what your wages should be. Let's negotiate wages. It's very interesting how Jacob responds. He responds with one word, and the word is Rachel. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's weird, right? Like, he wants to be paid with a woman? Like, that doesn't seem appropriate at all, okay? And it's not, okay? In our culture, definitely, totally inappropriate. In this culture, it would have been a little bit more normal. I'll explain. But first, who the heck is Rachel? All right, so here we go. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the oldest one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Okay, so Laban has two daughters. Uh, one has glasses, right? And one is just gorgeous. Is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's going on. The contrast is between weak eyes and beautiful. And it's a Hebrew idiom that basically means unattractive. So it's just a way of saying, look, Laban had two daughters. One, not very attractive. One, just stunningly gorgeous. And what Jacob says is, look, I'll, I'll work for you. And what I want in exchange is I want to marry your daughter. And I know this sounds weird, but in this culture, this was a common practice because there was something called a bride price. And the way this worked is if you had a young man who wanted to marry a young woman, he would have been required to pay that woman's father a certain price in order to have her hand in marriage. Now, Jacob, he's on the run from his family. He left with nothing. He doesn't have anybody with him. He doesn't have any money. He can't say, look, I'll give you, a, you know, two grand or whatever it would have been. He just, so he says, look, I'll work. I'll work for her. And in fact, he says this. He says, I will work. Uh, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years. Okay, so it's normal in this culture to pay money in order to marry a woman. But seven years, that's a long time, right? Like I think back where I was seven years ago, that is a long time. And wages of seven years, like multiply what you make times seven years, I'm hoping that's a lot of money, right? And so was it normal to pay that amount of money in this culture in order to marry this young woman? And the answer is no. Jacob is offering an amount that's like three or four times more than what would have been normal. So what does this tell us about Jacob? He's a terrible negotiator, okay? Like those of you who are in business, you don't lead off the meeting with, I'll give you four times, whatever you're asking. Like that's bad business, Okay, that's not what this tells us about Jacob. 
What it tells us about Jacob is that he is head over heels for this woman. I mean, he's desperately in love with her, and he's basically saying, I'll, I'll pay whatever. I'll pay anything. He'll, he'll do anything to marry this woman. I'll, I'll give you four times whatever you're asking. And I just think this is so sweet. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't this nice? Right? And single women in the audience are like, what, where are these guys now? Right? Like, <laughs> what is happening? I, I like this. I like Jacob. I love his love for this woman. The fact that he's like, seven years is nothing because I love her so much. It, it's cute. It's sweet. I really like this story at this moment. But I got to tell you, I got to warn you, what happens next, not so cute, not so sweet. Here we go. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Okay, time out. Uh, so I have three daughters at home, okay? I'm telling you, if anyone said this to me about them, they'd be dead. I mean, they would be dead, just bottom line. I come from Caledonia before all, everybody moved there. Like, we, you know, we handle this a different way. <laughs> so you would never say something like this to a prospective father-in-law in our culture, right? You'd have to be insane. So it must be that, you know, way back then in the ancient Near East, they were just really blunt and awkward about these things, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Understand, this ancient Near Eastern culture is so much more traditional and conservative than us, especially in the area of sexuality. So what Jacob has said here is so wildly inappropriate. It's so outrageous. It's just like, Jacob, what are you doing? Like, what are you thinking? What, what the heck, man? Why would you say this? And so let's just take a step back and think about what's going on in Jacob's life. Think about what's going on in his heart. He is five, 600 miles away from home. He's all alone. He doesn't have his family. He has nothing. He's lost this, you know, any part of his family. And his father's favorite has always been Esau. And I just believe that Jacob has never really felt like he's had the love of his father. And I just recognize that in a room this size, there are people here who have felt that as well. And that is hard, isn't it? It is hard to just feel like, I don't think I have the love of my dad. But Jacob, he's a mama's boy, right? He has his mother and they're very close, but because of what has happened, because of what Jacob did, that he's never going to see his mom again. That relationship is lost. It's broken. And Jacob, he has his twin brother named Esau. In twins, they have this like kind of crazy, almost mystical bond, right? This super closeness. Esau hates him. He has vowed to kill him. Understand, Jacob has lost so much, I just believe that he finds himself in a place where he's just absolutely empty. And then he sees this beautiful woman, Rachel, and he says, oh man, if I could have her, everything would be better. I mean, if I could marry her, that, that would just fix everything and just fill up this emptiness that I feel. You see, when it comes to Jacob, living in Haran with his uncle's family, I think it is Rachel. He looks at her and just says, man, she is the one. She will fix my problems. Rachel is it. 
Now, this brings us to question number one about it, and it's simply this. What is it for you? And what is it for me? What is that thing, whatever it is, that you believe is going to fill you up, fix the emptiness, solve the problem, make things better, give you that sense of happiness and meaning and fulfillment and joy? What is it for you? And maybe it's some kind of sense of achievement, It's a job, it's a promotion, it's a company that's successful. It has something to do with achievement. Or maybe like Jacob, it's more relational. It's like, it's a status thing, but it's more like single to dating or, you know, single to married. And just this sense that when I find that person, that's going to fill up this emptiness that I feel because we'll have this thing together. What is it for you? What is it that you believe is going to fill that void and solve that problem? And understand, I'm not asking you to do anything about it. I just think it's really helpful to go, oh, you know what? I think that's what it is. Because it drives our actions. It motivates us. It causes us to think and feel things. It has so much influence in our lives. I just think it's wise to say, you know, I think I know what that thing is. And something else about it is we're not talking about bad things here, are we? It's like succeeding in your business and getting a promotion. That's good. Getting married, that's usually really good. These are not bad things. It's just understanding when we believe that thing over there, that it is really going to solve something for us. I just think it's important to identify it and go, oh, there it is. I know what you're talking about. Now, back to Jacob. He has said this wildly inappropriate thing to his future father-in-law. And I would, for the record, never recommend any of you say this in that type of situation. But for him, shockingly, it's kind of worked. Because his father-in-law says, you know what, you're right, you worked for seven years, we had this deal, let's throw a wedding. And so he invites everybody, he throws this huge party, There's there's a feast, there's tons of food, there's tons of wine, and the wedding day comes, and then the wedding night comes, and then the next day, here we go, it's coming, just hang in there. When morning came, there was Leah. Okay, what do you mean, right? Oh, I get it, like Leah's the maid of honor, and like she brought breakfast to the new couple. Like, no, Jacob wakes up, rolls over, and there's the daughter with glasses, right? Freak out. I mean, what would you do? It's like, I mean, imagine what's going on in his head. This is bad. This is real bad. What's happened here is Laban has deceived him and pulled the old switcheroo. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so he wakes up, and it's Leah. And you might be thinking, okay, how in the world could this happen, right? Like, come on. He doesn't realize the whole time couple factors going on here. Number one, this bride would have been presented to him heavily veiled in this culture. So picture almost like a burqa, you know, like all you can see is like the eyes. So there's a veil involved. Number two, uh, they, this whole thing would have taken place in a very dark tent. Ancient Near East, no electricity, right? Just very dark. So veil, darkness. Thirdly, when I said a lot of wine, I mean a lot of wine. Like Jacob went to bed Right, so he wakes up, it's like veil, darkness, wine, boom, there she is, Leah. And he's understandably furious. So he marches off to his uncle, and he's like, what have you done? Specifically, he says this, 
He says, so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, hang on to that word. It's important, deceived me. And Laban, he responds with, well, chill, chill, calm down. Here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. Jacob, he says, finish this daughter's bridal week. This was a week-long celebration. Then we'll also give you the younger one, Rachel, in return for another seven years of labor. And now these four words, I can't even handle them. I don't know about you, right? So Jacob did so. What? Like who in their right mind? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Another seven years, two wives. That's a good idea. Sure, sign me up. No, like why? What are you thinking? There's got to be more going on here, right? There's, There's something else happening and it's true. There is. Look at how Laban describes this situation to his son-in-law. He says, or uh, yeah, son-in-law. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. He says, look, I don't know how it is where you come from, okay? But we don't put the younger in front of the older, right? The, The younger doesn't get the new genes. We put the older in front of the younger. That's just how it goes. And I think something is happening in Jacob's mind and in his heart in this moment. I think he's seeing, I think he's even feeling for the first time what he did to his family. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He put the younger before the older. In fact, look at this parallel. This is the story This is Isaac talking to Esau after this whole thing went down. He said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And then the story we're looking at right now, what is this you have done to me? You have deceived me. Same word. And I think it's just like, bam, hits Jacob right in the face. And he's like, oh my goodness. And he feels it for the first time. This is what I did to my family. And so he just meekly says, okay, okay, I'll take this new deal. You see, I believe that God has moved in this situation in such a way that Jacob can now see for the first time what he did. And the reason is that God cares deeply about how Jacob has pursued this it that he wants so much. And this brings us to question number two about it, which is simply this, how am I pursuing it? And understand that God cares about how we pursue that thing that we believe is going to fix our lives and bring us happiness and meaning and fulfillment and purpose. How am I pursuing it? Now, how do you know if you're pursuing that thing in a way that honors God or dishonors God? I mean, how do you really know? Well, let's think about Jacob and what he did and how it played out. Three observations. Number one, Jacob hurt people in his pursuit. I mean, he deeply wounded his father, deeply wounded his brother. In the process of pursuing that thing, that it for him, he hurt people. So how do you know if you're pursuing it in a way that honors God? Are you hurting people in your life? Is there like this wake of destruction behind you that as you run after that thing that you believe is going to fix everything, you can just look behind and it's like, wow, that's, that is a relational mess. Are you hurting people? Secondly, Jacob, what did he do? He lied. He cheated. He deceived. He compromised his character. And as you and I pursue whatever it is, are you compromising your character? Are you hiding the truth? 
Are you fudging the numbers? Are you cheating? And I just bring this up because God cares deeply how we pursue it. Third observation about Jacob and the implications of how he pursued this thing that he was after is that he lost relationships that mattered deeply. He lost his relationship with his family. As we said earlier, he will never see his mom again. His relationship with his brother, I mean, it is busted. And so as you pursue that thing that you believe is going to change your life, are you in danger of losing some relationships that deeply matter to you? Because I just can't handle the thought of waking up 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and going, man, I did it. I won. I achieved it. And then realizing that I lost my kids or I lost my marriage and there's no longer anybody there with me to celebrate what I've accomplished. And so I would just plead with you and challenge you, don't pursue whatever it is at the cost of the people you care about the most. God cares how we pursue it and that we don't pursue it in a way that's destructive and relationally damaging. So Jacob, man, he is learning some tough lessons about it. I mean, you have to agree. But what about the other people in this story? I mean, he's not the only one in this marriage here. Like, he's got two wives now, and they're sisters. And you've seen the show Sister Wives. Like, this is next-level sister wives, because they're actually, you see what I mean. Okay. So how are they doing? Leah, Rachel, how are they handling all of this? Well, let's start with Leah. What do we know about Leah? She's the unattractive sister. She's got this younger sister that's just stunningly gorgeous. And I just wonder, what has it been like to grow up in the shadow of a beautiful sister? Your entire life feeling like you're invisible. I mean, I just don't believe that there were young men knocking on Laban's door saying, hey, I want to take uh, your oldest daughter out. Leah, like, hey, I want to marry, like, this was not happening. I think she feels invisible. And think about what her father did to her. So here's the deal, okay? We're going to dress you up. We're going to switch you out. It's going to be so great. Like, this must have been an absolutely horrible experience for her. I think she feels invisible. I think she feels unwanted. Her father has basically offloaded her on Jacob. And I believe she just feels absolutely unloved. Now she's in this marriage where Jacob is just laser-focused on Rachel, and it's like, oh yeah, Leah, whatever. I mean, imagine what that felt like, just to be unloved in this way. Now there's something I need you to see about how God responds to her. Check this out. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. I just need you to see that in her pain, when she felt invisible, unwanted, and unloved, God said, I see you, and I care about you, and I'm going to love you by opening your womb. And so something crazy is about to happen in that Leah is going to give Jacob a son. And you have to understand, in this culture, the gift of a son was just a huge gift, because now Jacob could pass on his name. Now he could pass on this blessing. I mean, this was a huge deal. It would have been like the greatest gift that you could give your husband in this ancient world. And so she has this son. And what she names the son is very, very interesting. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. 
Now, there's a, there's a very interesting wordplay going on here because Reuben means to see. And it's like she's saying, God has seen me. He's given me this son, and now maybe my husband will see me. But he doesn't because he only has eyes for Rachel. But she gets pregnant Again, check this out. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she named, uh, she said, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Two boys. Simeon means to hear. Another wordplay. It's like God has heard me. Now maybe my husband, now maybe Jacob will listen to me. But he doesn't, because he only has eyes and only has ears for Rachel. She gets pregnant again. Check this out. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Interesting wordplay. Levi means blue jeans. No, okay. <laughs> it was getting too serious. Levi says maybe, uh, Levi means to become attached. And I think the idea here is maybe now he will love me. Maybe now he'll see me, maybe now he'll hear me, maybe now he'll love me. But this is heartbreaking. The only thing we ever get about uh, Jacob's relationship with Leah is this right here, where he says, Jacob loved Rachel much more. That's it. That's it. That's all she gets. Second place. It's heartbreaking to think about what she's going through. Absolutely tragic. Now, that's Leah, and it's not going well for her. But let's think about Rachel, right? Rachel is this beautiful younger sister, and, and Jacob is just, I mean, absolutely enamored with her. He's worked, what, 14 years was the deal in order to marry her. I mean, she's got to be feeling amazing, right? Like, my husband loves me and everything like that. Let's check out how she's doing. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. I don't think she's terribly happy, to be honest with you. Here's what I see happening right here. Leah is like, man, I wish I was Rachel, because Jacob loves her so much. Rachel is like, man, I wish I was Leah, because she's having babies, and I think truly it's like Leah saying, I wish I had her body because look at it, and Jacob can't stop looking at it. And Rachel is going, I wish I had her body because she can have babies. And it's like envy, envy, envy. They, they can't even experience any sort of joy and happiness because all they can see is what the other person has. It's all about envy. This brings us to our third question about it, and it's simply this, do I envy it? And here's the question I would ask to get at the root of this. That it that you're running after, does it belong to somebody else? Is it somebody else's job? Is it somebody else's husband? Is it somebody else's kids? Man, I wish my kids were more like her kids. Is that thing that you're running after that you believe is going to fill the emptiness and, and bring you that sense of fulfillment and purpose, does it belong to somebody else? Are you envying it? And I just think this is really important because if you find yourself in this place, this is trouble. This leads to bad things in our lives, and some of us know that this is true. And so if, that, if that's you this morning, I would, I would encourage you to be cautious. 
And something else I believe about envy is that getting what you want is not going to fix the problem. The antidote of envy is not getting what you're envious of. It really isn't. I've been disappointed by this too many times in my life. So what is the antidote for envy? I believe it's something else entirely. This might sound crazy, but I think it's gratitude. I think it's learning to be thankful for the blessings that God has placed in my life To be able to say, I'm so grateful for this. I recognize I don't have that, but I'm just so grateful that God has given me this. And I'm telling you, if you find yourself in a place today where it's like, man, wow, I've never thought of it like this before, but I am envying it and it's somebody else's, I would encourage you to practice gratitude in your life. The antidote for envy is gratitude. And so I want to give you a practice, something that I do on a regular basis, I learned this from a senior pastor at uh, Ada, Jeff Mannion. Gratitude journal, okay? And this is what we do. Uh, every morning, begin the day with three specific things that I'm grateful for. And I try to be as specific as possible from the previous day. And I'm telling you, the practice of this, day after day after day, it has done great things in my heart. If you do it once, it's like, that was nice. If you do it for a year, it will change your heart. I'm telling you, it has worked for me. So let me just give you a couple examples. Um, they're not like amazing, so just you know, tune down your expectation here. Okay, <laughs> number one, thank you for the bike ride with my kids where everyone pedaled and no one melted down. Okay, so I have five kids, I didn't mention that, right? The chances of a bike ride actually succeeding are very slim. <laughs> this particular day, it worked. Uh, thank you for, uh, reconnect, for the opportunity to reconnect with my friend, Dory, who served for years in our student ministry. It was crazy. I went to this wedding, wasn't expecting to see her. She moved to another state. She showed up. And it was just so fun to reconnect. How you doing? How's your family? You know, what's life like in North Carolina? It was just, you know, you have these moments. I was just like, man, I'm just so grateful for this. It was so nice. So that was the second one. Third one was opportunity to meet with my friend Brian. I think this is the kind of church where I can say that we had a beer. Is that, is that legit here? It's good? Okay. All right. If not, sorry. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I met up with my friend Brian for an adult beverage. Maybe that's safer. Uh, Brian is such a mentor in my life. Do you have people like this? Like, every time I meet with him, he just invests in me. He encourages me. He asks me questions that I need to think about, right? And I just had some time with Brian. It was so refreshing, so good. But this is, this is my example. Just three things. In the morning, it's like, God, I'm just grateful for that. God, I'm grateful. And I'm telling you, this practice over and over, day after day, it can change your heart. Because envying it is trouble. And getting that thing that you're envying is not going to fix what's wrong in your heart. But developing, cultivating an attitude of gratitude, I believe, can. So that's for free. Practice of gratitude. Maybe try it out tomorrow. Maybe try it out this afternoon if you find yourself in kind of a tough spot. Now, back to the story. Let's wrap this up and get out of here because I know some of you guys got brunch plans. You might be thinking, thanks for coming. Uh, terribly depressing story. I'm not feeling great right now. Does anything good happen in this story at all? And the answer is yes. But it's really easy to miss. Something really good and positive happens in the life of Leah. And this is, are you ready for this shock? with another baby, okay? So here we go, she has another baby, but listen to how this is described. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, do you see the difference here? It's like, this time, it's different. This time, I will praise the Lord. 
So she named him Judah, which is a name that basically means praise or praise God. And then she stopped having children. Nothing about Jacob. There's like this change. There's like this defiance. There's like this confidence that is, that is happening in her life. And what is the difference? I think it has to do with this word right here. Lord. Have you ever noticed sometimes in your Bible you're reading it and it's like Lord and it's all caps like that? Have you ever seen this? It's like, what is that? This, the, uh, the translators are trying to give us, uh, this is a specific name for God. Anytime it's all caps, Lord, it means the name Yahweh, which that's how we believe you pronounce it. There's an ancient Hebrew. This is how God revealed himself to his people. He said, I am, and it's like Yahweh. And he revealed himself as this knowable God. I'm the one that you can have a relationship with. And he revealed himself to his people. And somehow, we're not given the details, Leah has begun a relationship with this knowable, personal God. And I'm telling you, it's changed everything in her life. And so it's like, this time, it doesn't matter if my husband loves me or sees me or hears. This time, I'm just going to praise God. You see, what I think has happened here is she has exchanged it which for her was the affection of her husband, the attention of her husband. She has exchanged it for God. She has exchanged that need, that it, for a relationship with her creator, and it has changed everything in her life. And so just a final thought, final challenge is this. This it, whatever we believe that it is, as long as we continue to think that it is going to fill up our hearts, Fill up that infinite. As long as we believe it, it's going to fix all of our problems, we will continue to be chained to it. And Leah has experienced this beautiful expression of freedom. It's like, I don't need the affection to be happy because of my relationship with my creator. She's free. That's the image here. She, she is now free to be the person that God created her to be. She is no longer chained to it. When we exchange it for a relationship with God, we too can experience freedom in Jesus. And so I would just encourage you and challenge you this morning. If you have identified, oh man, I think it's that thing, it might be a good thing. And it might be important that you do pursue that thing. But don't make it the ultimate thing. Because only God, only the gift of his son Jesus and that relationship with God through him, only that can really fill up this eternal size vacuum in your heart. Exchange it for him and you will begin to experience freedom. Guys, thanks for having me here this morning. It's been a blast. You guys are great. Love the building. Love to pray for you guys as we close. God, thank you so much for this time. And thank you for this uh, crazy story about Jacob and Leah and Rachel where we can just uh, learn a little bit about our fallen human nature. God, I just see myself all over the place in this story, and I'm sure that others do as well. God, this brokenness that all of us experience, this magnetic pull toward different things and experiences and people that we think are just going to fix us. God, may we recognize that we were created for you that we were designed to know you and walk with you. And God, those of us who have been wandering, we know the truth, but we've just been wandering after some other stuff. God, bring us back. Remind us that you are the one that satisfies. You are the one that fills us up. And God, I just pray for people in this room that have never truly experienced that freedom. 
God, open their hearts to you. And God, may you move in them. May you bring uh, people into their lives to show them freedom in you, what that looks like and how it can be experienced on a personal level. God, thanks for who you are. We love you. We just give this time to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.